Welcome back to another Green Section podcast episode. I'm your host, Adam Miller, USGA agronomist and director of the Green Section Education Program. Got a really cool episode for you today. We talk with John Kaminsky, who's director of the Golf Course Turfgrass Management Program at Penn State. And we talked to John about sort of the latest trends that we're seeing with winter injury, disease issues, and then wrap up talking about the challenging labor market and especially around assistant superintendents. In this episode, I also talked to Dave Johnson, who's director of grounds at the Country Club. Dave and I discussed how the course came out of winter and what it looks like 60 days out from the U.S. Open, his tips on managing Poenia greens at a championship level. Dave also shared some anecdotes about what it's like to work with Gil Hance. He's had the opportunity to work with him at three different courses throughout his career. Hope you enjoy this episode. John, thanks for being here this morning. Let's get started into sort of the the topic of the moment and and winter injury. We're seeing quite a bit of POA annua injury on greens in the Northeast and wanted to get your take on what you're hearing or seeing as far as damage coming out of winter and, you know, what do you think the the primary causes are, you know, likely the usual suspects like crown hydration or are you seeing anything else? We're seeing a lot of uh, dead turf. Um, obviously, annual bluegrass putting greens are the primary problem that we're seeing. I think this is different from the 13, 14, 14, 15 years where we had a lot of ice buildup and we saw a lot of anoxia. I think this is primarily crown hydration. We had some warm days that came through probably in, in February, and, and now here we are April 1st, um, and, and we're still getting really, really cold temperatures. So. At our research facility, I've got all kinds of pockets of winter kill um, that I'm pretty sure are crown hydration. And if you look on Twitter and Scott Fisher at Country Club of Harrisburg, he posted a good side-by-side picture of dead areas <clears throat> in one photo and then where all the standing water is in another photo on that green. And, and it's pretty simple to explain it that way that I think crown hydration has been our biggest problem. Similar to what I've been seeing too. And in addition to some of the crown hydration, I've seen some desiccation. I feel pretty good that most of that stuff will bounce back but yeah the the weather that we that we had in late March early April not only did it just be frustrating from superintendents from a recovery standpoint but it delayed kind of figuring out what's alive and and what's dead and what's the best recovery program so it'll be interesting we still have a a ways to go yeah and if I, and if I was thinking about it right you would pull samples in probably March and put them inside and see if you made it through winter and you probably pretty be pretty happy with the results of it and then as we went through March and got into the teens and, and you know the low I don't know, well below freezing um, they, they may have had some additional problems so I don't think we're out of the woods yet in terms of discovering how bad it's going to be but I'm hoping that the worst of it's done. Well, let's move into recovery I know you and Devin Carroll who you know congrats to her for just uh, passing her PhD or getting her PhD uh, when she was at Penn State, you guys did uh, a bankgrass germination study looking at sort of cold temperatures, you know, and recovery following winter kills. So any advice with recovery related to seeding or things superintendents can do to help, you know, speed up recovery and get the greens back in good condition? The primary things that we saw out of Devin's study, uh, Dr. Carroll now, um, were that, first of all, we're not going to get much in the way of germination of anything you know, under 10 degrees C, so around 50 degrees. We just, we just couldn't get bentgrass to germinate in controlled conditions. You know, it was like that nine to 10 degrees was like the cutoff. And so we're obviously not there yet. We're having average temperatures or decent temperatures up in the 50s, 
but superintendents feel like they have to do something, right? Like you're not just gonna sit back and do nothing. So they're pounding seed and trying to get it to, to germinate, but there's just not really the temperatures conducive for that. And the other thing that we found out of that, <clears throat> when we looked at probably 20 something cultivars of you know, bent grasses, um, you know, this range of cultivars, there was huge variations in the ability of the different cultivars to germinate at that 50 degree critical point. So I don't remember all the details of it, but I do remember something like Pure Select and Pure Eclipse. They were really good. They germinated at, at pretty high percentages at the, low, um, at the lower temperatures, right, once you met that critical. But we had others, we were getting you know, virtually no germination. So I think that's part of the problem. I think knowing whether your cultivar is gonna germinate at the lower temperatures and selecting those. My usual recommendation is to aerify the heck out of it and just try to get the poa to come back, right? It's not going to be the healthiest in the summer, but it's going to germinate and it's going to um, develop probably quicker than the bent grass in the spring. So that's kind of what I recommend. You're just in a tight spot. Without having the temperatures, you're just spinning your wheels doing all this stuff. And then the last component of it was, well, how do I, you know, what can I do? And we see a lot of people using the job saver to, to dimple their greens and seed. And it actually, in, in a study that we did, it was actually one of the poorest um, germination uh, or, or renovation practices for germination. We got better success simply by slicing seed into it, you know, aggressive slicing and quarterification than we did with the dimpling. Uh, we were at a Western PA talk this winter and someone said they were overseeding, but they were putting more of a, a, a dirty mix top dressing to fill those holes. We didn't do that. We just put sand in it. So it could be if you do something to maintain the moisture in those holes, it would be okay. Um, but we found that just slicing in multiple directions, you know, adding core aeration or not, didn't really matter. Um, that was kind of the best, but ultimately they got to wait for the temperatures. That, and that's the, that's the frustrating part because you want to be doing something. And, and what's next week? We, we've got the masters, right? And, and that's the kiss of death for superintendents in our area because everybody expects them to have perfectly green um, turf and everything healthy. And, and we're, and I look at my watch, we're, we're going to be 50 as a high today in State College, but I think our high a couple days ago was like 17 degrees, so <laughs> um, not really conducive for overseeding. Yeah, and covers certainly can help manipulate the soil temperatures a little bit and get germination. I was at a course earlier this week where we did see germination because of covers stimulating the, the soil temps, and actually they were in job saver tines. Uh, so interesting to see, you know, that, that research component. I think it's, there's so many different ways to get germination. It's just a matter of germination and spreading beyond that and how severe the damage is. I completely agree. You know, the, the guys that have older poa greens with a ton of poa in the seed bank, that gives you, like you said, it's a little bit trickier in the summer with fresh annual bluegrass that's, you know, only a couple of weeks old to have to deal with, but you just want some grass at this point. Absolutely. I mean, I think we, we learned a lot of lessons in Detroit and the Chicagoland area in 13, 14, 14, 15, where people were reestablishing large portions of, of turf. And, and obviously it's just, it's a frustrating time um, because there's nothing you can do to prevent it. And and then now you're just waiting for temperatures. And I agree with you, like just get some grass on there so that you're going into the summer with something to play on and, and deal with it in the fall if you have any stress. And so it's, it's, it's tough, but this is you know not unusual. We see this every five or six years, right? There's always something that comes through and it's either you know heavy ice storms that accumulate underneath the snow that cause anoxia 
or if we get, you know, Punxsutawney Phil screws us over and tells us we're gonna have a late winter. And in this case we did, and things woke up and then we got shut down again. It just causes problems. It boils down a lot to the nature of Poanya greens in the Midwest. And I think it can be a fantastic surface. It's it's really good. And there's reasons why so many courses have POA, whether it's shade, traffic, you name it. But it's also the reality of POA greens in this part of the world that, you know, at some point you can do everything in your mind right and still get the wrong end of the deal and, and have some winter injuries. So yeah, frustrating way to start the uh, start the summer for a lot of people. You know, and, and I'm curious, I haven't heard a lot of reports, but I know in that 13, 14, 14, 15 year, that was right around the time that coincided with a lot of superintendents in the transition zone going to Bermuda grass for their driving ranges and stuff, right? And in two straight years, they got wiped out. And I'm curious if anybody you know, went back to Bermuda and if they're going to have any issues this year with winter kill. I, I don't, we, we won't see that for a little bit of time, I don't think. But, you know, there's always those problems. POA is a struggle in the north and Bermuda, when they're pushing the envelope going to the transition zone, it can have the same problem. So that's what makes growing grass so much fun. Yep. There's no perfect grass and something's always going to, you know, experience a, an issue here or there. Let's dive into, obviously, something that you're re- very familiar with, uh, Waitia Patch. Not to give you too much credit, but I think you and Frank Wong were kind of the main folks behind discovering Waitia. Is that right? I give all credit to Frank and he just let me kind of ride on his coattails on it. But we were, you know, both fresh faculty members in California and Connecticut. And those were the epicenters where we saw them showing up. So yeah, we both worked on that together um, around 2004 and five. Yep. So it comes up every spring. It seems like at least in the the northern half of the U.S., YT or, you know, some some guys call it Bron Ring Patch. You know, we'll start to see the pictures showing up on social media. And in most cases, I feel like it's a lot of visual certainly can cause some pitting and and disrupt ball roll to some extent, but usually not like wiping greens out or anything. It's just more of a transient issue. So any new developments with YTIA or things that superintendents can do to minimize the symptoms or are the same traditional sort of prevention programs kind of the ones that we should go with? I think it's pretty much the same. I don't know how much additional work has been done on it. The critical part to me is making sure that you're dealing with brown ring patch because we're right at that point where we're going to have cool temperature brown patch and and brown ring patch occurring at the same time. And brown ring patch, um, the symptoms are very unsightly and they want to control it for that reason. And usually if you get the right control, it will it will disappear within a week or so. Whereas cool temperature brown patch, um, same thing, can be unsightly, but if you treat for that, they won't go away. I mean, it'll, it'll arrest the symptoms or the, the progression of the pathogen, but it'll just sit there until we start getting growth. Whereas the brown ring patch tends to go away a little bit earlier. So what I always tell people is if you pull a sample out, put it in a Tupperware container, on your desk, the symptoms look the same, but the brown ring patch, it'll fluff out with mycelium overnight pretty quickly. And that's an easy way to distinguish between the two. So the first thing I would say is make sure you're, you know what you're dealing with. And the second thing would be, yeah, I mean, picking the, the right fungicides. I think the QOIs, the DMIs, um, a few others, and then trying to mask the symptoms a little bit with nitrogen. Um, you know, We're a little bit early to be pounding green with nitrogen right now, but that's been the kind of primary things people have done. And I don't know if there's there's much more to it. I've never seen depressions or problems where there's pitting. I think Frank out in California saw more of that, but it's ugly, right? And, and your members or people are out there golfing and they notice it. Even if it doesn't actually affect their ball roll, <laughs> they're going to complain about it. And so that's that's why I think the treatment is, is pretty important. Yeah. I remember Frank in a presentation when he was describing the incubation differences between brown ring patch and yellow patch and he you use the mycelia will fluff out with brown ring patch i believe he said it's gonna look like don king coming out of the plug so yeah. frank's always good for those one-liners 
I have a really good picture that's used. It was from my time at Connecticut, and it's used in all the different books and slides. He nails it. It looks, it's kind of this grayish white mycelium that comes out. It, it does look like Don King's hair. I think the younger people don't know who the heck Don King is. Those of us who followed like Mike Tyson in his heyday, yep. you know, we're pretty familiar with who Don King is. Yep. All right, let's move into Gray Leaf Spot. It seems like, it may, maybe maybe it's just sort of the because it's more on people's radar, but it seems like it's been a little bit more of a problem the last few years, especially on turf-type tall fescue. And maybe that's, we've got more turf-type tall fescue planted on bunker banks and things like that. But what's your take on this? I know there's been a lot of focus, you know, from universities, Rutgers in particular, you know, around Gray Leaf Spot. So what, what do you got here? It's 100% making its way north and starting to attack tall fescue. We identified it. I worked with Dernoden actually a couple years ago and Travis Russell, uh, my PhD student. We got samples from Maryland and uh, Delaware sod farms and they were getting hit really hard. You know, we did the Koch's postulates and confirmed it and published it in plant disease. And since that time, and before that time, but since that time, it seems like every year we're starting to see it more on tall fescue. Now you're right, tall fescue is kind of replacing ryegrass and Kentucky bluegrass is the species of choice, not only for golf course roughs and that, but also for home lawns. But the temperatures are, you know, we're definitely seeing warmer temperatures. You've got these susceptible cultivars now. Um, ryegrass can really take a hit, but now tall fescue. So the more options that are out there for the pathogen to attack, the more prevalent we're going to see it out there. And so it's something they have to be really vigilant about. And, and luckily, groups like Rutgers, um, I'm sure they've done tons of research on breeding in perennial ryegrass, and now I'm sure they're shifting their focus to tall fescue as well. So hopefully they'll have some new cultivars coming out that'll that'll help. But cultivars aren't resistant; they're just more tolerant, right? They'll still get it to some degree, and not everybody's going out and establishing or renovating completely to these new cultivars that are tolerant of it. The new turf pathologist uh, at the University of Maryland starts <clears throat> May 1st, uh, Farishta Shahovesi, and um, she's gonna, I think do a lot of work on Grayley Spot. She's like a, this crazy up-and-coming epidemiologist and she wants to do a lot of spore trap work and, and try to really better understand the timing of these uh, when these spores start flying and develop models around that. So she's going to do a lot of work on it and I think we're going to try and work with her on that. So there's the breeding side of it, but there's also the modeling side of it that's going to be important. Yeah, that'll be cool. From what I've seen, the Grayleaf Spot that just would wipe out ryegrass, intermediate rough, or green surrounds, I haven't seen it be as damaging on, on tall fescue. Do you, you kind of confirm that? or? Yeah, I think on tall fescue, it's more like you know a bipolaris or helminthosporium type leaf spot. Like You get a lot of lesions. It generally kind of thins out the turf, and you can see it. It's a discoloration. Um, and all the photos I have, it, it looks like more of a, you know, a net, blot, net blotch or a leaf spot type thing, and not the wiping out like you would see with you know, ryegrass. I mean, that would be down to the dirt on fairways and roughs and stuff. Nonetheless, still a, still a major problem. And if you have both ryegrass and tall fescue, you know, you're basically pulling double duty there to get whacked. Any new developments on other disease issues that superintendents should be thinking about? I know you're looking at, you know, Pythium patch, but anything else on the pathology radar? I don't know. I mean, we're kind of in a lull where I don't think we've seen anything new. If you go back to 2005, let's go back to 98, right? Like the, the, we had bentgrass dead spots started, um, somewhere in there, we had um, rapid blight come out. We had brown ring patch in 05, thatch collapse in 10. Pythium patch, you know, we're finally got a handle on it and are ready to like publish those papers. Um, but that was 05 too. So there's always something new coming down the, the line. I don't know what the next, next new thing will be, but I think fungicide resistance, um, you know, pathogen resistance to fungicides is going to be a big one. Nematodes, you know, that's still kind of a black box. 
in the Northeast. I think that, you know, Rob Wick retired at UMass, and I don't know how much work uh, Nathaniel Mikowski's doing at Rhode Island on it, but again, I think Farishta down at Maryland, she's got a strong background in nematology. Um, a new person I have, a research associate in my lab, is gonna start working on some nematology. So that's probably the next one, right? It's like if you start hunting for something, you're gonna find it, right? So like, people ask, why did all the brown ring patch samples really concentrate around New England? Well, because I was looking for it, right? So we were identifying it, and I think that that's probably going to be the next big thing is the, the nematode issues. Um, you know, I hope that a new disease pops up that's new and exciting and we get to tackle it. But I would say they're once in a lifetime opportunities, but I've been involved in four new discoveries. So, um, you know, right place, right time. Um, but I, I think it's more along the lines of cultural and, and control of the pests and then managing your fungicides because of resistance, right? We now have four different active ingredients where resistance is identified in DMI, dicarboxamides, uh, benzimidazoles, and now the SDHIs. Three of those four are the most common chemistries used. And so that, that presents a big problem. Well, you touched on fungicides, so it dives right into my next question. You know, what's new for 22? You know, what can superintendents look to sort of add into their, their toolbox that uh, they didn't have previously? The only new one that I can think of is there's a new pythium fungicide out from um, FMC called Serata. And then we obviously have some of the, the newer chemistries that have come out in recent years, like Maxtima and Kabuto. And I was going through some of the literature and trying to look at the latest things, and it looks like we have around 20 or 21 unique mode of actions in turf, right? So unique mode of actions being like a DMI. And then of all those 20 to 21 modes of actions, we have about 50 unique active ingredients. But I just mentioned it, three of those active ingredients, three of those, I would say, mode of actions, they make up 15% of the unique mode of actions, right? So you've got DMI, QOI, and SDHI. They make up you know, only 15% of the total mode of actions that are available. But if you look at all the active ingredients that are available, the, the 50 active ingredients, they make up over 40% of those. So we're really putting, it's kind of unbalanced. We're putting a lot of weight on a handful of the available active ingredients. You know, you start looking at all the mixes and the tank mixes, they almost all contain one of those three or some combination. So the resistance issues is going to continue to emerge as a big problem for us. And then I'm on a, a call today with the USDA and some researchers um, to talk about the future of a couple other fungicides, one of them being Iprodiome. So you've got the only dicarboxamide left, right, and still used pretty frequently and, and, a, and a good fungicide. And now they're talking about whether that's going to stay on the market or not. So not only are we going to lose an active ingredient, we might lose one whole you know, mode of action. Um, and that's not good. You know, as it stands now, we have some, the ability to rotate and do some things, but, but we do rely heavily on, on a, a select few modes of action. So let's dive specifically into what's going on at, at Penn State. You know, I know you've been a little more active with your diagnostic lab. So what, uh, what's new there? We decided a few years ago to launch a diagnostic lab. Penn State has so much red tape. It's a total uh, nightmare. It took a year for them just to, even after they said, yes, we can do it. And we hired somebody. It took a year before they gave us approval to actually like start charging for samples and and it was a nightmare but now we have the ability to do that and so yeah we're we're going full-fledged um typical of what i did at connecticut university of maryland 24-hour turnaround you know where possible you know direct connection to my text messages so we can discuss it it's it's going to go back to how i did it at connecticut and we hired a full-time person uh, who's a pathologist um, to run that lab on the day-to-day, -day, and uh, it's going to be good. I'm excited to, to offer that as a service, and I think McGraw and I, we talked this morning, we're going to try and start a weekly 
podcast, like a pest podcast, where we talk about disease, insect, and weed problems. You know, it probably gets a little bit repetitive at times, but as it's time for seed head control or crabgrass control or annual bluegrass weevil timings, we're going to try and make it a little bit more available. I'm not a big podcast person, but it's easier for us to do a podcast than it is to try and pull together a weekly um, blog or something. But we're going to be launching a lot of new things, I think, in 2022, and then um, we hope to start doing nematodes in 23 and add that to our service as well. We file for permits to get samples worldwide, so now we have the ability to get samples from throughout the world, which it'll be good for us to kind of just be able to see what's going on if people decide to use us. I don't think there's a lot of labs that do international samples. I think Phil Harmon does um, at Florida, and we talked, and we kind of want to have an agreement where I'll do all the cool season samples internationally, and he'll do all the warm season samples internationally. He says, I hate the cool season diseases, and I say, I hate the warm season diseases. And samples are already starting to come in. We haven't seen any brown ring patch yet, but I'm getting some large patch from the southern U.S. where they have zoysia. It's already starting to show up, and, and then the winter kill has been the big one. We get samples saying, you know, look at this, and can't find any pathogens. You see the crowns all water-soaked, which is another reason I think the winter kill is, is crown hydration more than anything. You know, the, the, the primary part of your job, as I understand it at least, obviously, is the, the teaching component of it. Um, I know you, the different appointments, it seems like it's 100%, 100%, 100%. Uh, but I've got to get you out of here with sort of the overall industry question here. Labor definitely still persists, no doubt, especially the assistant superintendent shortage. There's been a lot of discussion on social media recently. Um, you know, being where you're at with Penn State in the in the two-year program, I'd love to get kind of your perspective on this. You know, how's enrollment looking, interest level in the program, you know, what are your graduates doing, uh, you know, just overall feelings on this uh, on this topic. I think it's an exciting time in the industry right now. And I think the thread I did uh, last week or the week before about kind of the history of the evolution of turfgrass programs since, you know, the early 90s. I feel like I'm fairly spot on with that and kind of where we were and what that means where we are now. Holy wow, we're getting a lot of requests for information and applications into the program. So if you look at the numbers just in the two-year program in the last probably four to five years, you know, I think we went from like a number of graduates. It was something like six, seven, something like that. And now we have 14 students that are going to be graduating next year. I think we're pretty close to already having that many students enrolled for 2022, fall 2022, and we're not even at the time where we would normally get applications in. By this time of year, we probably have like three students signed up to come in the fall. It's always after next week in the Masters, and the employees go back to their golf course, and they've been there a couple years, and their boss says, hey, you know, you've been doing this for a couple years, you know, do you ever think about doing this as a career? That's when all of our applications come in. So I don't can't predict what's going to happen for the fall, but I'm thinking we're going to probably be up to 20 to 25 students starting in the fall, which is you know, almost double, which is incredible, I think. You know, yesterday I had um, a, a, the director of the, you know, basically like the USGA green section for Spain, Spanish Golf Federation. He was in town because he wanted to, he flew in because he wanted to meet with us to talk about the options for their people online and on campus. It's just blowing up all over the place. And I don't know if this is an anomaly or, you know, a future trend, but if you look at the the students graduating, they're all getting jobs the fall of you know, the year prior to graduation, ready to be lined up to go out and work. You know, there's differences in the students. You know, I would ask, how many of you want to host the US Open? And 10 years ago, I'd get 80% of the students saying, yeah, me, that's me. Um, and now I get maybe one. You know, the, the work-life balance question uh, is, is, comes into play a lot more. 
I think superintendents in, in general are starting to recognize that and adjust. You know, salaries are way up. Um, internships. Prior to uh, the pandemic, um, I probably had students that were still working for nine bucks an hour, right? 2019. And that's what I made at Congressional in, 2000, in 1997. And so that's a pretty bad sign, right? But I went on TurfNet last week or whatever it was, and, and the range is like 12 to $21 for interns. And the average is around 15 or 16. And that, that's a big jump just now. I mean, that's not something that's progressively happened. So they're getting paid a little bit more. People are understanding that, you know, maybe they want that work-life balance and they're trying to accommodate that. But the students need to realize it's still a, it's still a grind, right? It's still a, a tough job. Um, and it's not right for everybody. But I think the state of the industry for the next at least 10 years, uh, which will run me through retirement, which is awesome, um, I think the state of the industry is, is going to be, is really going to be good. I think you have a, a large group of people at the top that are going to leave. You don't have a ton of assistants th that are available, but they'll vacuum up into those top positions. But unless we start getting an influx of new students, there won't be anybody to fill the, the assistant roles. And I think that's why you're seeing clubs starting to push their employees to do something education-wise so that they're able to fill those roles. So I'm excited. I think that from a turf perspective um, and an education perspective, we're, we're in a really good spot. The, the one caveat to that, and I know I've just rambled for a while, but the one caveat to that, during the low, which has gone on for 15 plus years, um, some turf programs have basically dried up or gone away. And that's the unfortunate part, because now when we're going to see this resurgence and influx of new students, those programs won't be available. So fortunate for Penn State, we have a big program, but you know, we can't teach everybody. You know, the, the Wisconsin's, right, the Maryland, you know, those schools, we still need them to complement everybody and, and to offer things for in-state students. And so that's a frustrating part. But in general, I, I see pretty good things as it relates to student numbers, and, and then that translates to assistance and, and trained people coming out to the golf course. So I don't know. You've probably seen a lot of the Twitter and comments, and there's still some frustration out there. But my feeling is this. You don't just deserve to be a superintendent because you went to school or you've worked as an assistant for five years. Like, that's not how it works. That's not how any job works. There's still a bit of luck involved. There's still a bit of, you know, positioning yourself and networking. But I also say you don't, there's assistant jobs that pay enough to be a, a livable wage. You don't have to be a superintendent. You should be able to be an assistant and have a career position that way. So we're seeing all those things with increased wages, but we'll see. We'll see where it goes. This is now on tape, so if five years from now I'm totally wrong, they can come back to here and say, yeah, you're an idiot. But I think, I'm, I think it's, it's going in a positive direction. I can also understand, too, that all the superintendents that I know, I mean, they work extremely hard to get to where they are, and there's a passion that has to be there. And I remember you telling me this Again, probably back to when we, you know, first started hanging out in, you know, oh seven, oh eight. You've got to love golf. I mean, if you don't love golf, it's it's going to be a tough, tough business. It's a tough business no matter what. But you know, having that passion for the game of golf and being able to sort of be outdoors, get that job satisfaction when you drive out each day. I mean, that's every every job's going to have sort of their their highs and lows, but especially one where you're, you're, you're dealing with mother nature and you're constantly, you know, seem like, okay, the, the to-do list is never done. It, it's just always something to do. Um, I could see why it's, it gets really stressful on, on superintendents at different times. So, um, again, I'm with you. I think it's an exciting time. Uh, I, I also feel for superintendents that just, they're not getting the, the applicants. They're, they're struggling with staff. There's a lot going on there. 
Yeah, and I think the, the unique part about being a golf course superintendent in this field, too, is it's not like a progression of, you know, you're a, a lawyer and you're gathering information on, you know, case history for your client to going into litigation. It's all kind of similar type thing. When you start out as a young person, you love being outside, right? You love mowing. You love your, your perfectly straight lines. Like That's what motivates you and excites you. But ultimately, if you're going to be successful in the industry, you're not doing that as the boss, right? You're managing budgets and people and interacting in a different, it's like almost a different job. Um, it's like me as a, as a researcher, as a grad student, I love doing the research and being in the field and looking under the microscope. And now my whole job is like bringing in money to make sure that I can have students that do that work, right? I don't get to do that anymore. Um, not to the level I did then. And so the, the young people also have to realize like, the job is gonna progress in a totally different way. If you got into this just because you love mowing straight lines, you're gonna be in for a shock when you wanna progress up, you're not gonna be doing those jobs. You're gonna be managing people doing those jobs. And so um, they do have to love golf, they do have to love the you know being outside, uh, but they also have to realize that they're gonna be ultimately running a, a large business and, and that's a different look than, um, than what they got into. And I think that's a unique situation in the turf industry and maybe a few others, but. I think it's unique in the turf industry um, in that way. And so, you know, some people don't have the communication skills, so they're frustrated when they can't get the jobs um, because they, they think they know how to grow grass. But remember, a very small portion of it is growing grass at that level. It's, it's, it's all those other um, intangible things. So um, I don't know. I have faith. I think that people are going to progress and move up. I think that there'll be some frustration and people will get out of the industry or go into something other than golf. But... Um, we're always, the industry's always going to need new good employees and, um, and right now we're at a shortage. So it's a good time for anybody wanting to get into this uh, business. Um, it's a great time to go to school and, and start getting out there and working. Well said, John. It's always fun chatting with you. Um, thanks for taking the time today to, uh, to give us an update on, you know, winter injury, disease issues, and then moving into uh, to what you're seeing at, at Penn State with the two-year program. So thanks so much. Yeah, I appreciate you having me, Adam. Thanks. All right, now let's move into the conversation with Dave Johnson, Director of Grounds at the Country Club. Dave, it's awesome to chat with you again. Uh, unfortunately, I want to start the podcast with kind of a, a, a frustrating topic. Winter injury is something that has been observed at a lot of golf courses in the Northeast this spring. And uh, I'm curious if you can tell me if uh, the Country Club has been affected at all by the winter injury. Yeah, good morning, Adam. Luckily, we're looking really good out here. I would really want to take this opportunity to thank my team. I know greens covers don't prevent winter injury, but I believe they helped us out this year. But the, the guys really did a phenomenal job managing those covers. I remember uh, second week in February, we were getting a couple warm days. They peeled everything back. Um, we actually have some of the greens. We have a two-layer system. We use some Inca mat under impermeable covers. And they ended up taking some of that matting off and putting back the, imperme the impermeables uh, once the cold weather returned. So a lot of work, a lot of effort. They did the same thing in March twice, and then we finally got them off uh, towards the end of March. So green surfaces came through great. We have a couple little bird baths on. A few of the fairways, just some poa that sits in low areas, but they're tiny and already growing through. So fortunately, we're doing all right. That's awesome to hear. And you're you're 100% right in terms of the, the covers. They're a nice tool to have if you've got the labor to manage everything associated with the, the spikes in temperatures that, that can happen underneath the covers. And we know the Northeast is prone to those ups and downs. So when we chatted in March, things were looking good. I know it was still pretty early. Overall, where is the course 
And how's the build out going? We're just starting to get some growth on the surfaces, but with coming through the winter nice like that and those warm days we got right after the cultural work, we've aerified right tea to green, um, all solid tying aeration, deep tying the greens and the teas ahead of the solid tines, top dressed everything up. And all of that stuff is 90% healed already with some of the mild days we had. So we're starting to see growth and got our proxy spray out this spring, preventative fungicide on the greens. So really happy. Got some rain last night, four tenths of an inch to help grow things and help that sand get in the canopy so really happy on that end um, as far as the build out it is truly amazing uh, we've been planning for three years looking at a site map and trying to imagine flagging where these tents are going to go but I believe the tent company which is arena they have 68 employees on the ground right now right outside my office is the 14th hole and it's a two-part fairway it's two tiers the lower section is about 425 yards long and the entire length of that is already built out. The Champions Pavilion, the Trophy Club, a, a smaller merchandise tent, and also a really long stretch of corporate hospitalities. It is just happening really quick. It's something to see. It just has such a different feel as soon as things go up like that and you know you get different vantage points, especially once the grandstands are up. You, you'll be able to see the course from, a, you know, obviously we've got drones and things that can give that aerial view, but the view from the grandstands on some of those morning morning days where you can, you know, they're doing prep, it's it's going to be pretty cool. So we're we're certainly excited. No doubt it's a lot a lot to manage, a lot going on, but it's an exciting time. Yes, it is. Every morning, everybody's um, all smiles and raring to go. So it's it's quite a quite a vibe. Nice, nice. I know we we chatted a little last time about your work with Gil Hansen. You've probably been, you know, one of the few people that have done projects with him at three different courses going all the way back to your time at Whitensville uh, Golf Club or Country Club. What's it like working with him from a superintendent perspective at a day-to-day, you know, facility and then one that's prepping for the US Open? I always talk to other superintendents that get to work with Gil and I say we're the lucky ones. You know, he's become a friend over the years. I've known him for so long and um, he truly is a superintendent's architect. Granted, he's an artist and does the best work in my opinion, but he always looks at me when we're, when we're working on something and he'll give me the look me in the eye and are you good with this, Dave? And I just, I really respect that aspect of him. and. I've learned so much from him, working from him. There's been times making some changes to golf holes where I just scratch my head. I'm like, I just don't see why we're doing this. And then the work is all done and I step back and I'm like, how did I miss that? It's just amazing to see. So yeah, I'm a lucky one. And um, he is just a phenomenal person to be with, to work with, and to learn from. Was there anything that really jumped out as like a a difference in terms of working with him you know at your previous two courses versus the country club when you knew the U.S. Open was coming well it's all relative I don't know if I told this story the first time um, I got out onto Whitensville with Gil after a couple meetings with the committee we finally got out on the course together just the two of us and we were going to start on the first green expanding it we got up there and he started explaining to me what to do then he looked at me and said do you have a sod cutter and do you have a couple guys I responded yeah I only had a staff of five so he said, well, get them set up. And we, we continued on our tour. Uh, we came back across the street on the fifth hole, which is near one, and the guys were all set up. Gil jumped on the sod cutter, cut up a um, corner of the green, and then showed us how to um, correct the grades um, all by hand with a flat shovel and a rake. And once it was ready to get that sod back down, he said, you guys can take it from here. And that's how you do it. And it was awesome. And we did that type of work to every green there. Um, at the Wiano Club, same thing, and 
uh, worked with them here, getting ready for the open and for our membership too. Like I said, the greens were holding some water here and he wanted to get those grades right. So he's the guy on the shovel and the rake. Um, I try to help him, but there's some contours he won't let me near. So it's a running joke between he and I. That's a cool story. Cutting the sod, getting the uh, you know the contours the way he wanted them. You know that's that's not easy. Uh, I would say when he told you, okay, you can take it from here. That was uh, you know a, a pretty hard undertaking at that point too. So green expansions they look easy to do and they look awesome right away. But yeah, they're they can be a headache to manage. Yeah, you can't just walk away, Adam. It's sometimes uh, dependent on the site. Will take you years to get that to grow like the rest of the green. And I always call those green expansions, and we manage them differently even here. We're watching them differently. And and calling audibles on them, but I call them uh, kind of my sick, my sick children. Don't take your eyes off them and manage them properly. But if you do that, I've been very successful, and yeah, I learned it from him. So very thankful. You use the phrase, you know, don't take your eyes off them, and that I think that's a big part of managing just POA on a golf course. And you've got, you know, essentially POA almost wall to wall. What's your biggest challenge that you find with POA, whether it's in general or at uh, the country club is it you know summer diseases like anthracnose is it you know wilt watch um, annual bluegrass weevil what what do you think um so it's kind of changed when i've gotten here i think it's it's relative to most people that manage power but there was some anthracnose on the greens the first year and we focused on plant health got everything uh, got our soils nice and balanced and growing some nice healthy plants now and I would say now that that's behind us, the ABWs are a big concern, but been working on a program. We monitor, um, we're a weevil track site. We're watching our um, phenological indicators closely. I have a great staff and everybody's working as a team out there scouting to make that first application uh, work and build off of that. So I would say that's our number one pest. And yeah, I'll give it back to my team on this one too. When you're, when you're managing power and you're pushing it on a daily basis, it's all about handwork and um, you know water management, especially on the green surfaces. Um, yeah, we have overhead uh, sprinkler heads around them, but we don't use them. Um, it's all handwork with hoses setting up in the morning and getting through those afternoons and watching every piece of the green, especially the expansion. So don't take your eyes off them. Um, it is it's a lot of work. I'm thankful for the team I have that uh, they do a great job at it. What do you think the biggest tips are for superintendents in terms of managing pole greens to try to produce that high-quality putting surface? Well, it's plant health, obviously. You can't do anything unless they're growing good. I'm very aggressive. We're very aggressive with our cultural work. We're in the springtime right up until June, verticutting every, depending on the condition of the grass, every 10 days we're out there with verticutters, probably two directions with them, um, and sugarcoating the greens with the top dressing just to keep them smooth and consistent. I think everybody that manages them, we're all in the same thing. Roll them, mow them, double mow them, watch them, be consistent, use your use your tools to your best ability. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. it so much of it, it in that sense is the the art of green keeping when you're figuring out two direction verticut single direction verticut you know what what's the next couple of days look like all those things are um you know stuff that you guys you guys handle on a daily basis and it's neat to have the polo greens when they're so good you know seed heads are obviously a challenge at different points of the year but you you already were out there with one of your, your proxy sprays and uh, it'll be exciting to see how the greens continue to just sort of gear up for the U.S. Open. What's really the next month look like, you know, on the golf course from a championship preparation? And are there any big milestones coming up on the calendar, big club events that that are going on? You know, what does that next month look like? Yeah, um, May is a really busy month, and we start out the month May 2nd is media day here. So 
Um, it's going to be a big day for the club, and we want to be in our best condition we can by that. That's early in the year, but by that time we should be. And like I said, the cultural work's behind us, so it's fine-tuning now. Getting down to our cutting heights, light sugar coats of top dressing, uh, tea to green, a lot of rolling, just really managing those surfaces focusing on our rough we gotta um, really focus on up the middle inside the ropes and uh, a lot of fine-tuning luckily we don't have any huge problems to deal with the biggest hurdle is staying in front of the build out the contractors are moving quick so we're working with the usga team the the ops guys uh, need to know where they're going next week so we can mark our infrastructure all our sprinkler heads, our lines, any electricity that's under the ground. Those are the biggest things we're focused on right now, and I think we're in good shape. Awesome. Really great to get an update from you. It's it's We're so excited. Can't wait. Thanks so much this morning. Uh, I'll let you get back to, you know, you got a few things on your plate still, so as we, uh, we, get, we get ready. So thanks again. Nice talking to you, Adam, and uh, I'm sure we'll see you soon. All right. Sounds good. Thanks for listening to the USGA Green Section podcast. Be sure to subscribe, listen, and rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can also keep up with the latest content on Twitter and by subscribing to the Green Section Record, our digital publication that's published twice a month.